hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. Today we have a special guest who is not just an author, but an agent as well. So you guys are getting a double whammy in terms of publishing insights, in terms of her critique of her submission, etc. So let me do a bit of an introduction there. Today's guest is a former philosophy graduate student turned literary agent who is fascinated by both the stories we tell ourselves to live and the lies we cling to that sabotage our chances at a good life. Dun, dun, dun. That's probably the best author bio I've read. She was born and raised in Northwest Ohio and now resides in Philadelphia with her family. Today, we're going to be talking about The Hunter, which is her first novel. Welcome, Jennifer Herrera. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, Jenny, thank you so much for joining us. There was so much to love about this book. For our listeners, again, it's called The Hunter. It was such an assured debut that I had to check multiple times that this was a debut. I was like, there's no way this is a debut. But we, we, we're going to get into all of that. We're going to ask Jennifer all the questions. Before we do, though, as per usual, we're going to dive right in. And Cece is going to kick us off with the first query letter. 
Before I do, what I love about this format is that we get to see Bianca's voice change when she reads the author bio. It's very cool. She gets into her official author bio voice. Okay, here we go. Dear Cece, I'm seeking representation for my 69,000 word literary sci-fi novel, In the Eyes of Iris. I'm the author of Unorthodoxy, Atmosphere Press, 2019, which won an Independent Publisher Book Award in Popular Fiction in 2020. What did Iris see? A true vision of the future, circa 2300? Or was it just a drug-induced delusion? Dr. Kairos, the hospital psychiatrist on call the day they brought Iris, a 20-year-old genius into the DR, surreptitiously hits record on his iPhone as she begins to tell a delusional tale far more detailed and imaginative than he's ever heard. Iris's story. After taking a megadose of ayahuasca, she finds herself in a post-apocalyptic future populated by two classes of humanoids. She awakens into the body of a grizio, a member of the genetically modified working class with gray skin, elongated fingers, and three thick toes. The grizios live under protective domes and work all day in vertical farms growing futuristic produce they're forbidden to eat. At first intrigued, Iris becomes increasingly troubled by the Grizios' lack of agency and monotonous lives. In a break from routine, the Grizios gather for a mysterious ceremony and Iris is chosen to join the gods in their ultra-luxurious space station. Iris is initially repulsed by the gods' superficiality, laziness, and cruel exploitation of the Grizios. But when Artiste, a hyper-intelligent and seductive form of technology overseeing the gods and Grizios, introduces her to the Encompass, a mind-bending augmented reality device, and Reaction, a highly addictive virtual reality game, she quickly adopts the god's lifestyle. Weeks later, when Iris is crowned Reaction Grand Champion, she must decide whether to continue to live in a state of tech-addled bliss as a god or return home to fight for a better future. By the end of their day-long interview, Dr. Kairos believes he has captured one of the most important delusional accounts ever told. But his patient's unannounced visit the following morning and her radically altered persona will challenge his understanding of her time-traveling story and of his own place within it. In the Eyes of Iris was inspired by the frame story structure in The Time Machine, H.G. Wells. Modern comps include Vagabonds, Reinception, and the Ministry of the Future. I hold a BA from Brown University, a JD from UC Davis, and an MA in English, MFA in Creative Writing from San Francisco State University. In addition to Unorthodoxy, my work has been published in the East Bay Times, Gravitas, Berkeley Times, Ars Poetica, and Chariot Press. I also served as an associate editor for L.A. Ville, Stories from the Streets of Port-au-Prince. Please find the opening pages attached. Thank you for your time and consideration. Sincerely, Joshua Harris. Thank you, Cece. Wow, 69,000 words only for a novel that has this much world building? That's interesting. I was expecting to hear it's a 169,000 word novel. Okay, so how many words were in the query letter and what was your take on that? So this one came in at 458. That was actually my first note, my marginalia. I wrote 69,000 words. This is, this is going to be a challenge, right? Because it's literary. And so, of course, those sentences have to really shine. And also it's world building because it's sci-fi. So I'm not saying it can't be done, but I am, I am surprised with the, the word count. 
plot paragraphs, which is my my obsession, as everyone knows. I had so many questions, which isn't a bad thing at all. So, for example, when Iris is is over there, right? When she is in this future world, which we don't know if she actually went to or not, but do they know that she's from the past? Like, is that why she's chosen? Do they want anything from her? I'm trying to understand like what the transactional nature of that relationship looks like beyond Iris's interiority. Because I understand her own internal struggle, which is, do I stay here and what, you know, the writer, you know, called a tech-addled bliss, or do I go back and fight for, for a better future? But what's in it for them? Like, what is their interest in her? Like, given that she's from the past, do they know this? Does she suspect that they know this? Do they, does she think they don't know, but really they do know? I'm trying to figure out where the tension lies there, and I'm trying to untangle that a little bit. Also, the major dramatic question reminded me of the Matrix, the blue pill or the red pill, which I really liked. That was a nice, a nice touch. Dr. Kairos, there's a line that reads, he believes he's captured one of the most important delusional accounts ever told. This got me a little confused because he's calling it a delusion. So he thinks it's not real. But why, why is it important then? Just, just because like there are people, you know, in, in delusional states, People can think all sorts of things. Is it the imagery? Is it the, like what, what exactly is drawing him? And this is a plausibility issue on my end. Like he's a psychiatrist. He presumably deals with delusion all the time. If he does think it's real, or at least if part of him does, you know, I kept thinking maybe she brought with her a rock that is made of something that we, we in humanity have not seen. Like, you know, he gives it to his buddy. His buddy is, is, has contacts in some type of lab and, you know, tells him, look, this is not from earth. I don't know, something like that. And that, I guess, would make him go, huh, you know, maybe the skeptical part of his brain would be shut off for a second and he would actually believe it. So I'm wondering how how he believes it. And that kind of kind of really got to me. I also wondered, you know, do we need this doctor's point of view? Because I'm not clear on where he fits in. I'm curious. It's not a problem that I don't know in the query letter. It is a challenge for the manuscript though, because you're going to have to convince me that Iris's story needs to be told through his perspective. So that's like a story within the story. So that's always a little bit harder. And I will say in terms of like being polished and organized, this query letter is very, very good. So excellent job. Thank you, Cece. Yeah, I have crazy delusions all the time. Occasionally that I'm a fairly decent writer. We all have them. Right. Okay. So what was in those opening pages, Cece? Okay. So we have Dr. Kairos wondering if he would have called it a premonition the dread he felt on the morning he met Iris. And then we see his routine that morning. He wakes up and he takes care of his mental health through an app. He's feeling anxiety and insecurity, which is quite usual for him. What's not usual, this is already in chapter two, is that he decides not to take his pills, the pills that he self-prescribed for his mental health. The pills make him feel a little bit more open to the world. And so he is listening to music as he's about to enter the hospital. He pauses at the door. Three nurses go by him and they nod, but they don't giggle. He notes that. And then he considers how he's the hospital's oddball. And he also thinks about when he was younger, the nurses would have all flirted with him, but now they don't flirt with him anymore. And that's where the pages end. Thank you, Cece. Okay, so that sounds like quite a bit of interiority for opening pages. What did you think of that? Okay, I want to start with everything that's working. If I had to direct this, if I had to shoot this, assuming I had any talent to shoot a scene, which I absolutely do not, I'm a loser with a camera, but I could because the movements are so clear. 
right? Like I knew exactly what was visually going on. And I also knew how the doctor was feeling. So, you know, this author did a really, really good job of visually setting up the scene with movement, with clarity, with setting, and also telling me exactly what the person was feeling about every single thing. When he opened his app, I knew how he felt about his app. When he picked up his headphones, I knew how he felt about his headphones, with the very specific note that someone gave him the headphones. And those details go a long way into adding texture. So that was a really good thing that the author did here. When it comes to stuff that I personally think could be elevated, question, is it intentional that we have no idea what he's anxious about? There's like three or four different references to anxiety and security, how it's usual for him, how he knows how to manage it, but there are no sharp specifics to tell us what what is making him anxious. And it doesn't have to be the information. It could be a curiosity seed. It could be her face popped into his head, but he, he, he didn't let his mind go there. Now I'm wondering who's her, right? Like, so... We have no clue, absolutely no clue. And I kind of really wanted to know, especially after three or four mentions. And then there's two things. The first thing is I'm pretty sure he's meant to sound delusional, right? Because he's a man who's outside a hospital, like a doctor. He goes there every day and he sees three nurses who, by the way, he does not name these nurses. They're just three random people. He doesn't think of their names in his head. And he notes that they don't giggle. His behavior didn't seem that odd to me, just pausing in front of the hospital. So it's strange that he would expect them to giggle. They're nurses, they're professionals, they work at a hospital. And then he thinks about when he was younger, you know, they would have flirted with him. All three nurses, all three nurses, and not a specific nurse with whom he has a connection, you know, a nurse that he has a crush on or that he knows she has a crush on him. All the nurses would be flirting with him. So clearly he's meant to sound like a delusional guy, right? Which is which is totally fine because that could be a really interesting place to start a story. I just read Little Monsters by Adrian Berdour and that starts with the point of view of Adam, a super delusional guy. And it's super well done. I think you have to dial it up. If I am correct and he's meant to sound delusional, dial it up because it's too subtle right now. Right now it's bordering between, does the author actually want me to think this? And then the other note I have is I'm not sure this is starting in the right place. Because waking up is typically challenging and then having the protagonist alone is typically challenging. So you're having two really typically challenging things together. I have seen stories begin with the character alone that worked. But usually, usually they're in a very unusual situation and or they're experiencing an active emotion, typically fear-based, right? So the reader is feeling the fear with them and fear promises story forwardness. That's also a really important thing that I would infuse here. An idea I had is what if he was interacting with a much younger doctor, someone who was trying to like usurp him, like try to take his place, at least in his head and potentially in his delusional head. That I think would make us cheer for him while also creating a nice contrast and power imbalance because he might have more seniority, but perhaps the doctor is viewed as the next hot thing in the hospital, like the next, you know, the next rising star or whatever. So that would create a sense of competition, which is always very interesting. So that might be a better place to start. I'm not sure. I obviously don't know enough about your story, but right now it's a little slow and I wanted it to be a little faster. Thank you, Cece. All right. So now we're going to spend some time chatting with our guests. So just a reminder, we are joined by Jennifer Herrera, who's the author of The Hunter. Jennifer is both an agent and an author. And just to read some of the jacket copy to you of The Hunter so that you know what we're talking about. 
After reckless behavior costs NYPD detective Lee O'Donnell her job and her marriage, she returns with her four-year-old daughter to her beautiful hometown of Copper Falls, Ohio. Lee has stayed away for more than a decade, even though her brother and trio of loving uncles still call it home, because while the town might seem idyllic, something rotten lies at its core. Three men in town have drowned in what Lee suspects to be a triple homicide. She hopes that by finding out who killed them, she just might get her life back on course. Headstrong and intuitive, Lee isn't afraid to face a killer, but she has to do more than that to discover the truth about what happened to those men. She must unravel a web of secrets going back generations and in the process, plumb the darkness within herself. Both a taut mystery and a deeply affecting examination of the lies we build our lives upon, The Hunter is a haunting look at how the search for truth often leads us back to the most unlikely places. So, Jenny, as I said earlier, what an assured debut. Can you tell us how long it took you to to write this book and, and send it out on submission? Yes. Well, first off, thank you for saying that, especially coming from you. That's just a huge compliment. I think probably was about to write it and send it out on submission, I think maybe a year and a half, a little over a year and a half, and then edits and everything. By the time we finished, it was it was two years. But I think that was pretty fast. You know, I'm working on the the next one because it's it's gonna be a series and I'm finding it takes so long. <laughs> I really thought the second book would be so much easier. But it turns out that, you know, life was very different in 2020 when I wrote that book. And I had huge chunks of time that were uninterrupted because, you know, we were all so scared of everything. And now that I don't have that, I'm finding it, everything's going much slower. Yeah, 100%. I always laugh when authors go, oh, I thought my second book was going to be easier. I thought my third book was going to be easier. Man, I'm busy writing my fourth book and this one is killing me. It is absolutely killing me worse than any of the other ones. So every book is that unruly child that you need to learn how to parent all over again, I think. Right. So something that I want to discuss with our listeners is, and I think that this is something that Jenny experienced as well as an agent, because this is what I see the most as a writing instructor and on the podcast. We have emerging authors who struggle to hold themselves back when it comes to sharing information. And on the podcast, we call it planting curiosity seeds. We say, don't show us all your cards. This is like poker. You've got to hold some things back. And I'm going to read you some examples from Jennifer's novel, and I'm going to tell you what page they're on to show you how to masterfully plant curiosity seeds. So I'm going to read you the first page where the first one comes in, and then I'm going to take you through a few other pages. So, I would not have pulled the trigger. It was just after 10 when I tuned the boxy police scanners to their stations. I set the Bearcat to cover precincts 1, 5, and 7. The Home Patrol would hit precincts 20 and 24. I tuned the Whistler to listen in on precincts 19 and 23. I lined them up on the marble coffee table next to the picture of Simone on Eric's shoulders at the Bronx Zoo. The photo of me in dress blues, shaking the police commissioner's hand. My leather holster, empty now, yet clinging to the shape of its old duty, its new regrets. On the window pane, I watched the same scene that played out a thousand times each day, like the jumbled pieces of a puzzle I was sure would never fit. A hand that was my hand, reaching for my sidearm. My Glock aimed at my partner's head. A thumb that was my thumb, cranking back the hammer. My voice, a command, don't move. 
I would not have pulled the trigger. I knew this like I knew my own name. What I didn't know was why I had done it. Why I had blown up my life for the sake of a perp who was caught hours after I helped him get away. This was three, maybe four minutes of my life, yet like an explosion, it had devastated everything. Dun, dun, dun. And I'm just like, oh my God, oh my God, what happened? What did you do? Why, why? And then we keep going. And then we get to page 23. We have a discussion over here with her brother once she's back in Copper Falls. And come on, Ronan said, the uncles are waiting to see you. They want to meet Simone. Uncle Bear left a car for you. Uncle Eamon put out food. Uncle Frankie is probably halfway through eating it, but still. Then softly, as if he were embarrassed for me. It's been 14 years. They don't blame you for not coming back. They loved her too. And we're like, oh my God, who did they love? Why didn't she come back? What are they referring to? Then we get to page 24. And she says, when I was a kid, dad used to say, half serious, that it was a gift from the fairies. Then he'd add that any favor the SC grant always comes at a price. I remembered being a girl looking out my bedroom window, wondering what that price could be. I remembered being a teenager looking out that same window, wishing I still didn't know. <gasps> now I'm like, oh my God, what happened between when she was a girl and when she was a teenager? What did you know then that you didn't know when she was a girl? Here we have another one. On page 34, Ronan said, after what happened in New York, I don't know. I just thought maybe you'd be ready to come home for good. What happened in New York? This was, of course, the perfect way of saying it, as if New York had been the problem, as if New York had compelled me to draw my weapon on my partner. The city-appointed psychiatrist had called my actions an acute emotional breakdown in which the detective's judgment was temporarily suspended. But that didn't mean anything, not to me. It had been my hand, my gun, my voice, my judgment. Yet it's like it hadn't been me at all. So Jenny, I would like you to talk a bit about this kind of restraint as an author and how you know when to drop those crumbs, plant those curiosity seeds and when to withdraw. That's an excellent question because I think that it's always tricky. It's a tricky balance for any author because at the one, on the one hand, it's like when you can withhold information like that, it can create this powerful sense of wanting to know, you know, even, you know, any book that I pick up, any suspense book you pick up, will have a question that goes unanswered in one scene that gets answered in a later scene but brings up another question. So it's like it keeps you as a reader following the breadcrumbs because that's just how our brains work. We want to know, we want to have an understanding, we want to know where things are going. And the best thing you can do as a reader is sort of make the answers to those questions be unexpected. Because the last thing you want is for, a, you know, you plant a question and then the reader thinks they know the answer and then they're right. If that happens too many times, the reader gets so bored. So one of the things that I do to keep that from happening is I write a lot. So I will have a question in my mind that I don't even know the answer to. Why did Lee point the service weapon, her service weapon at her partner? When I wrote that, I didn't know. And then I played around with an answer and I thought, no, that doesn't feel right. And I played around with another answer. No, that didn't feel right. And I kept going until I got to the fourth or fifth iteration. And not only did that finally feel right, but it was unexpected because it wasn't the first thing I thought of. And I think having that sense of patience is really important. And it's something that I struggle with a lot because I don't necessarily have a lot of confidence 
in the book until it's written, right? Until I feel like I can get from the beginning to the end. And so withholding that from yourself, withholding that sense of completion, I think is really challenging for some people. It's challenging for me, but I have to do it in order to get to the best story I can. So the flip side to that that I do want to say, because I think it's important to point out, is that anytime you withhold information from your reader, you're you're not giving them an emotional connection. You're keeping that at a distance. And so I think the thing that I find to be very tricky is I have to be very careful with how much I withhold and how much I give back. Because if you're always withholding, then you're keeping your reader at a distance from your main character. And that means it's hard to connect to them, right? Because you don't understand them. I mean, it's the same thing if you go to a party and you have, you know, on the one hand, the guy who like wants to chat you up and tell you everything about his life. And on the other hand, you have the one who's just kind of like, yep, one word answers or I was, you know, I was in Ohio once and then stops. Right. So it's like finding the balance between giving your reader something to connect to and withholding something that they want. I love that analogy. And can I just say that at a party, I know which of those two people I want to speak to. I do not want to be talking to the person who's jabbering away, telling me absolutely everything about themselves. I want to be drawing out the person who's being, you know, sort of quieter. But at the same time, some people might find that frustrating. And I love what you said about how withholding things keeps your readers at a distance, because that's something I'm struggling with with my current novel. There's so much I need to withhold from the reader, but then I need to give them other things to connect with, right? So these are things that you've done. You've withheld the plot points, but you've given us so much about Lee and her pain that we are able to connect with until we understand the plot points. And I think that is the thin line that you walk in this kind of scenario. And also, I love that you pantsed this, that you wrote this line and didn't know why she pointed the gun at her partner. Because honestly, surprise in the writer means surprise in the reader. Yeah. And I think that's, again, it's really challenging. You know, people often ask the question, especially writers, do you pants or do you go pantsless? I can't remember the other side to that. Pants or pantsless? Do you like to have your legs covered or not? Um, <laughs> Uh, But I think that's kind of a false question, right? It's always a balance. Like even if you have the whole thing plotted out, you probably don't actually have, you probably don't actually know every single beat. And if you do, then that means that, you know, what you're doing is maybe, is maybe different than what you thought it was. But at the same time, like I didn't know the answer to that question, but I knew some ideas. Like I had some thoughts about what it could be. And I knew that it had something to do with the central conflict for Lee. The central conflict for Lee is not necessarily the big mystery. You know, you have these three deaths. She wants to investigate them. The mystery is why are she and her husband separated? And so I knew that that thing that she did had to tie into her relationship with her husband in some way. I just didn't know how to connect those dots. And playing around with it allowed me to explore my own feelings about, you know, what what goes wrong in relationships where you clearly love each other, but like something has happened so that you're not like finding each other's frequencies. Yeah, I I really love that. And can I just say to all the plotters out there, the next time any of you give me shit for being a pantser, I'm going to say, hey man, at least I wear pants. You walking around without pants. So that is... that. I feel like it should be like either pantsless or you're shirtless. Like I don't know, it shouldn't be like <laughs> plotters and pantsers. It should be like you're shirtless or you're pantsless. You're naked or you got pants on, man. So I, I really love that. Right. Something else that I want to chat to Jennifer about is her 
beautiful, vivid descriptions. So when we talk about setting the scene and writing description, you know, I've seen many authors who are able to describe something very vividly in so much as I can picture it. But it takes a special kind of talent to describe something in a way that creates a tone and that creates feeling in me as opposed to just a mental image that I'm seeing. So I'm going to read two descriptions that Jennifer writes here so that you can see for yourself what I'm referring to. So one, the sun rippled over the cobblestones, giving the impression we were traveling down a very old, very bumpy river, leading to the sort of mythical place you couldn't get to by foot. We passed the purling creek and mossy rocks. We passed raised flower beds bursting with thick-leaved plants. A dozen ornate bird cages nestled into the crooks of the trees like a tiny village you could only see if you looked up. As Ronan pointed these out, Simon followed the line of his finger. She smiled as if she were witnessing magic. And it was magic that I could have been gone for so long and that the leaves would still bruise purple in places and shine goldenrod in others, that the sunlight would still filter through them like stained glass. It was so different from New York, which oscillated between monochrome and neon, where there were patches that could pretend at beauty until the blare of sirens cut short the dream. As we dipped under the arch of foliage, as the light speckled the car, twinkling and shadowed, the driveway widened like the mouth of a river. Its source finally swallowed us up. Holy hell, man, that was like sanctity. That was, it was a holy description. It was like communing with the divine. And this is just a description of a yard and of a place, right? I'm going to read one more and then I'm going to ask how you approach that, Jenny, right? The air in the greenhouse was thick and tropical. The walls were scalloped and foggy. The ceiling mushroomed over us. Guys, listen to that verb, mushroomed over us, while we're talking about a greenhouse, okay? It should have seemed vast, that room made of glass. Instead, it was overgrown and choked. It was cramped with every shade of green. Tangled vines draped over hooks and papery leaves winged out from two small pots. Tiny flowers with pink and white buds sickled over terracotta lips. Again, listen to that verb, sickled over terracotta lips. From the ceiling hung drooping succulents and dark green plants like strings of pearls. The floor, a dirt-speckled mosaic, was crowded with end tables and wiry stands with wooden pallets and tilting stacks of waterlogged books. On every surface sat verdant tendrils. They reached for the sun they could only sense. It was embarrassing how little they could hide their wanting. Whew, man. And this description tells us so much about this character. It is not just a description of the place that she is embarrassed for these plants, how much they want and how much they need, tells us so much about her. So can you tell us a bit about this, Jenny? Well, again, thank you. It's it's so funny because you, you know, you work on a book and you write it. And then at some point, like when I'm reading those passages, I sort of like gloss over them. And then when you're reading them, I'm like, I'm like rediscovering them. I'm like, oh, I did that. I did that. Wow. So first off, thank you for that beautiful reading. So one of the things that really mattered to me when I wrote this book, again, like I started writing it in 2020, I really wanted an escape. I really wanted to feel like I was in a different place. And so having really rich descriptions became really central to my goal because I thought like, listen, I can't do much for people right now. I'm not a nurse. I'm not, you know, somebody who can, you know, 
actually be helpful in many ways. The one thing I can do is I can write something that gives somebody an escape, an escape from whatever this is right now. So I knew that I wanted to build these deep descriptions. And I also knew that, you know, to be transported is to be transported into a mood. It's not about the place, right? It's about how the place makes you feel. And so I knew that I needed to be in touch with how these places feel for Lee in order to really bring the reader there. And so when she's going to her home, the place where she grew up that she hasn't been in 14 years, I knew that it had to feel magical to her. She had to be reconnecting to this magic, which is not necessarily the magic of the place, but it's the magic of that wholeness that she felt when she lived there, right? The magic that family can give you and the magic that she hasn't really allowed herself to connect to. So I knew that that description had to take you from a place of, you know, in the car, she's talking thrown in about like a murder, right? Like she's talking about these very like bloody things to come to this place where she feels connected in this very spiritual way, in the way that you feel connected to your family and like, like the cellular, the cellular level. And then when we, we move to the greenhouse, that is an eerie place for her. She doesn't have good feelings about that. So I knew the word choice had to be, you know, like you, you talked about sickle, like a plant sickles, right? Like a sickle is not like a positive thing. <laughs> You're not like, oh, a comforting sickle I'm going to cuddle up with in bed, right? So it, it has this edge of danger to it where she's, she's being reminded why this place feels uncomfortable to her. And I think we all do that when we move throughout spaces, right? The same thing, like a plant in one place can feel comforting and a plant in a different place, a different context can feel a little eerie and scary. And so I knew that I wanted the descriptions to hold emotions. And so finding out, like using the language that we use to describe people's emotions using that to describe inanimate things in her environment. So the reader can be fully transported, not just you can like close your eyes and see the place, but you can feel the place. Yeah, you you totally, totally did that. And for our listeners, please take away from that how your character can come into a room and describe it one way, one day, and maybe a week later something terrible happens to them and they walk into the room and they will describe it in a completely different way based on their emotions. So always look at your character's emotional calibration, where they are in their life. For example, if they walk into a room and see their husband's shirt on the floor, one day they might be super irritated and comment on how their husband always throws their clothes on the floor. If their husband was in a car accident that morning and they walked in and saw that shirt on the floor, it would have a completely different feel and vibe to it. So don't just describe things to us. Reveal something about your character in your descriptions. And that is something Jennifer does incredibly, incredibly well. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host, Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six-module, 10-hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app 
Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. All right, so now let's go to our next query letter. Carly, will you please read that for us? Well, this one is a special treat. Some people might, anybody who's a longtime listener and listens to all the bonus episodes and listens to everything, you will recognize this person. So, so listen up. Dear Carly, Cece, and Bianca, thank you for sharing your wit and experience with us on the podcast. I had the opportunity to listen to your lovely bonus episode from March, where in the process of answering my question... You induce both a smile and an arrhythmia when you suggest that I should be a guest on the show. I should know I went to doctor school, not a best-selling novelist school. Glad you enjoyed my quip. And in following up correspondence, the illustrious Carly Waters had used five exclamation points to describe my writing as very funny, exclamation, exclamation, exclamation. Well, I hope this unique query letter provides some interesting fodder for your listeners. If you prefer, I'm happy to talk about the strange things people put in their butts or act as medical consultants for your show or agency. Please note that while this bloviating query letter was written in equal measures for entertainment and education, the bulk of the standardized portion comes in at a pleasant 384 words. As an emergency physician, I am afforded the rare opportunity to enter into the lives of all members of society when they are at their most vulnerable, including Academy Award winners, homeless alcoholics, billionaires and single mothers, victims of sexual assault and their aggressors. I am looking for representation of my completed manuscript, War Stories, One Night in the Life of an ER Doc, based on your interest in unique memoir. While it was written specifically to appeal to the non-medical audience, it is positioned as an ideal addition to incoming professional health students, where memoir and narrative nonfiction titles highlighting the human aspects of medicine, such as Every Deep Drawn Breath by Dr. Wes Eli, and When Breath Becomes Air by Dr. Paul Calathani, or any of Dr. Atul Gawande's books are commonly assigned as required reading. War Stories is an honest, compelling, and sometimes humorous account that takes the uninitiated reader through the evening spent in the end of a 12-hour shift in the emergency department. The book contains approachable jargon and broaches topics as diverse and uncomfortable as sexual assault and human trafficking, language barriers, 
suicide, substance abuse, life, death, and of course, butt stuff. Written as nonlinear memoir for the first-person perspective of a physician, it makes tangential connections organically woven into a storyline interrupted with anecdote and exposition. Reflecting the unpredictable chaos of the emergency department, the emotional tone can shift rapidly from humor to horror to cynicism on the page. Though it certainly includes heroic saves and harrowing resuscitations common to the genre, the focus remains on highlighting the unseen struggles of marginalized members of society by telling their stories in a humanizing manner, allowing the reader to connect on a personal level with patients from widely disparate backgrounds. During the narrative, as the physician tries to get home to his family at the end of the shift, he is met by a recent patient, a veteran struggling with both substance abuse and his sins, whose experiences mirror many of the themes of responsibility, helplessness, and trauma articulated by the physician while caring for his patients. The physician serves as both clinician and confessional, and the veteran's emotional struggle for healing and redemption ultimately become a battle for the man's life when he attempts suicide in front of the entrance to the hospital. If both your partoid glands and neurons are healthy and operating at peak efficiency, I'm sure you're salivating and desperate to know why. Despite the obvious familiarity with your podcast, I've curiously omitted the word count. That's because this book does indeed have a hook, and it's one that will specifically challenge Carly's penchant for answering those pesky word count questions. This atypical memoir is complete at the equally unique length of 25,000 words, which, after these M dashes, allows you time to recover from the bombardment of neurotransmitters associated with confusion and fury, makes it enticing to incoming healthcare students. There are more than 190 medical schools in the United States representing almost 120,000 students, as well as 173 physician assistant schools, over 800 schools of nursing, where its short length makes this book strongly positioned to be marketed directly to deans when curating the required reading lists. The timing is also opportune to market to the general public, as emergency medicine has been thrust into the spotlight during the recent pandemic. At your request, I can send you a full proposal to demonstrate why this book is positioned to sell and provide you with the complete manuscript to enjoy. In my professional medical opinion, the short hour or so it will take you to devour this easily digestible memoir will be quite satisfying, whether or not you feel it fit is a good fit for your list. Thank you for making me smile and consider my inclusion on the show. Anthony Catalano, MD, FACEP. Thank you, Carly. Quite a few giggles there. Something that was also interesting. So for our listeners who do not follow Courtney Mom on social media or who do not subscribe to her newsletter, please do so. I think it was actually on Friday that we got a newsletter from Courtney who was looking at the trend towards much shorter books. And it was a really, really interesting read. So for those of you who are working on shorter fiction, definitely subscribe to that newsletter and read that article. Okay, Carly, so what was your take on that? Well, I'll start with the word count since that's always a good jumping off point, point of discussion. And if anybody is on threads, there's been a very interesting discussion on threads lately about word count as well. So it's I know it's always a hot topic of discussion. So the word count here, 25,000 words. You know, the first thing that I thought of, obviously the comps, you know, When Breath Becomes Air is, is a bit of a, a shorter book as well. But another one that made me think of is You Will Not Have My Hate, which a book came out after the Paris bombing, I want to say maybe like 2018, which was a shorter book. So like when something is very punchy, poetic, kind of very on topic, almost essay-like, like it's, it's, I can see how there is a market and an opportunity there. The issue becomes price point. What do you price something at when it is 
25,000 words versus a book that is 100,000 words. You know what I'm trying to say? Like there's there's a pricing issue. There's a packaging issue at some points with that. You Will Not Have My Hate was done in this. I don't know if you guys remember this book, but it was done in a hardcover, beautiful kind of like gold gilded Eiffel Tower with a very moody background of like deep blue, like deep blues, navies. Anyways, gorgeous cover, gorgeous package, short book. And they still priced it a bit higher. So I always find it very interesting when it's like in publishing, when we think about, you know, price point and packaging and positioning of shorter books, because a shorter book doesn't mean that it should be valued less. Sometimes it is because the actual cost it takes to produce a book is less money because there is less printing to be done. There's less paper being used. But sometimes it's about how much a package and an emotional experience cost, right? Jenny was talking about, you know, this emotional experience we try to create in, in the readers. And so I don't know, so I play around with that idea in my head a little bit. So when a book is shorter, you know, is it poetic? Is it more of a gift book? Is it an essay, you know, collection? Is it something different where there are times when things break the rules and break the mold. And I feel like this author has a very specific understanding of potentially he is in a position to break the mold in this case. And I would support that. So again, haven't read the whole thing. Don't know what this emotional arc is going to be, but I I can think of some examples and some ways that it could potentially work. But all that to say, I haven't actually read the book. Okay. So one of the things I think is really interesting here is the contrast, the power dynamics at play. There's a lot of really interesting kind of layers to this stuff is really serious. This stuff is really funny. And and so that tone that we're kind of creating through this query letter, obviously we hope that it's going to carry through in the pages as well. I do think the title is misleading, War Stories, right? Like we have a subtitle of One Night in the Life of ER Doctor. I think that's great. The title needs to be changed. I just think it's misleading. I think we can do better. I, I will leave that with the author to kind of come up with some better options there. But I think there's a great balance of life and death and dark and light, which is obviously something that is mirrored in this person's job. So I think that's great. I think there's some times where we're playing around with language here in a way that pushes the voiciness of a query letter and the acceptability limits of a voicey query letter. You know, there's some wording here that says the tangential connections organically woven, like could, we could probably say that in a more straightforward way or kind of getting towards the end where, you know, if both your partoid glands and neurons are healthy and operating at peak efficiency. I mean, at this point, we're like, we're getting towards the end of the query letter. We're like, we need to wrap it up. You know, the voiciness has been established. Those are examples where I think we can really trim that down, but it's very in intense and and, and I think it's overall, it's strong. You said this comes in at the 384 words in the standardized portion of the query letter. This is obviously way longer than 384 words because, you know, because this is for the podcast. So let's just make sure you stick closer to that when you're sending this out to people. All right. So now I'm going to tell you guys what was happening in these opening pages. All right, so we start with just a question that says, am I going to die? And so then we have our physician, ER doctor character, kind of directly interacting with the patient, thinking, you know, talking through in his mind, really, how he connects with patients, you know, when they're on their deathbed, basically. And so we're kind of exploring those existential questions, the practicalities of the job and the balance. And we're kind of just going back and forth with their mind about how they deal with, you know, these, these serious things that happen at work. They talk a little bit about kind of what it's like to actually be in the ER department, a little teeny bit about the history of kind of ER doctors, very small part of that. And then we get into another patient interaction talking about CT scans and again, how they kind of interact with patients through 
the ER kind of experience, how patients sometimes want him to be their primary physician. And he, again, kind of explains like the role of, of an ER doctor, lots of jokes sprinkled throughout. Um, and yeah, so that's the, that's the rundown. Now I will give you guys my analysis of this. So I really like this, you know, and I think sometimes when our expectations are high and a query letter is voicey, we're kind of primed not to like something because we're just like, is this person actually going to be as funny as we think they are or we hope they are or their query letter maybe projects that they are? I think there's a lot in here that's really working. And, and while I thought maybe the the balance and the query letter was a bit off in terms of that calibration of like how far we're going to kind of push voiciness, I do think it was like really pulled back and restrained and edited in a very appropriate amount in these pages, which I thought was great. So I'll give you an example. So the first line I said is, am I going to die? Next line. The words are inaudible, muffled by the high flow oxygen mask over his face and by the blood pouring from his nose, his mouth and the newly created hole in his neck. You notice that we didn't lead with the patient has a hole in their neck. It's the oxygen mask, the blood from the nose and the mouth, and then it's the hole in the neck. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like that, that choice was very intentional and very strong. And I thought that was, that was really, really good. And this is still some more stuff on the first page here. His eyes ask the question, even if his words fail him, there's not an actor in the world that can match the desperation and fear in a patient's eyes when they know they are about to die. Whenever I hear or see the question, I know they are not asking for the over under on their odds. They are waiting on a simple answer. Yes or no. I love everything about this, right? Like these big, deep existential questions about humanity and life and death. I love the balance of like the longer sentences and the shorter sentences, right? Like all of that is just so kind of thoughtful. And I love the self-awareness of this doctor and the humanity here. The next part says, before I can answer... I perform an exam, consider the underlying anatomy and pathophysiology, take an inventory of the findings, then begin directing my team to make immediate interventions as they execute an intricately choreographed dance based on my brief and limited assessment. So I love this because it's the admission that it is smart and it is complete, but it's only complete in the sense that because it's an emergency, right? And and it is a complete assessment, even though it's quick. And, and that's what doctors do. They have to make these really fast life and death decisions. But the humanity, again, that's being brought to this and the self-awareness, I think is great. And then after this kind of life or death scenario, he's the writer is kind of contrasting it with talking to a 22-year-old, convincing them that their experience with edible marijuana, like, you know, they'll live basically, right? And so it's like all of this, like life in the ER, right? It's like you get some light stuff, you get some heavy stuff. And, and that balance, I think, is is great. You know, it's it's very self-aware. The only thing I will say is I want to know if that patient lived or died, that first patient. So we're still in these five pages. We don't know. I think you kind of have to tell us how these patients are faring, especially the ones, you know, that 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 are more on the death side of life. You know, also this this person does this, you know, this doctor, this writer does say in these opening pages about like confidentiality, you know, things have been changed. Nothing about this was, you know, to do with direct care, like really like cleared up all any ethical concerns that we might have, which I think is extremely important. So I thought that was really good. And the jokes really just like they continue and they're sprinkled through, you know, there's a joke at the end that says, for this reason, the specialty has pushed for transitioning away from references to the ER emergency room in preference to the ED emergency department, not erectile dysfunction, like just these like little funny things where it's like, you know, 
the the marijuana consumption, the butt stuff jokes, like the emergency department, erectile dysfunction. Like, it's funny, like bodies are gross and weird. Like, I just really like how human this was. And as I said, I had high hopes because um, I thought this person was funny. And I am very glad to say they lived up to the hype. And I would look at this material, despite its its short length, and, and particularly the challenges that might come with that. But I think this is really funny and interesting. And anybody who follows me on social media knows When Breath Becomes Air is one of my very favorite books. And so I like when we think about life and death in these existential ways, especially from experts who come at it from an angle. You know, that's unique. Awesome, Carly. Thanks for that. That was a very interesting query. Okay, now before we come back to Jennifer Herrera, remember for our listeners, we are talking about her debut, The Hunter. Jennifer is also an agent besides being an author. And I think it really shows in terms of the quality of her work, because here is the thing. And I say this to writers all the time, you become a much better writer as you critique other people's work. And agents these days need to do a ton of critiquing. They need to do a ton of editorial work compared to sort of 10 years ago when they were doing a lot less. So Jenny, I know our listeners are going to fall in love with you the way we did. So if any of them want to query you as an agent, are you open to submissions? And what is your manuscript wish list? Ah, that's an excellent question. So I am open to submissions. I mostly represent nonfiction. So occasionally I'll do a fiction project. Fiction, I think became really tough for me the more that I got into my own writing because I found that, you know, when I got fiction submissions that I kept trying to like strong arm, well, I would do it this way. You know what I mean? So I had, I had too much, I was too close to it. And so I've really pulled back from working on fiction. Occasionally there'll be somebody who I've just like, can't help myself and I have to represent. But in general, I do nonfiction. I love working with physicians. So I, I loved, you know, the query letter that we just got. I thought that was hilarious. And certainly one of those things that, you know, as I'm reading, I think, ah, yes, what are people interested in? I tend to just work with a lot of journalists. I work with a lot of people with really interesting backgrounds. So it's not uncommon for somebody to query me and I don't really like the material they've sent me, but I really like their background. And they, you know, have some cool degrees or they have some cool experiences. So I'll get them on the phone and I'll say, listen, would you be willing to start from scratch with a brand new idea? <laughs> and that can be really intimidating for people. But, you know, I will say every time it's happened, you know, I've sold the book at auction for a ton of money. So it's, you know, I think it's really useful the things that I can do where I take somebody and I know how to, I know how to sort of package their material so that I can sell it to a publishing house so it can, you know, find its greater audience. Because I think for a lot of writers, I mean, that's the goal. It's like they, they don't know necessarily the industries in and out the way I do. And so I'm able to just talk to them about their work and their expertise and say, hey, we can, we can use it in this way. And it's usually pretty exciting. And that's amazing for writers who are open to that because, you know, sometimes the project that they're working on isn't the one that's going to launch them. But how amazing to have somebody say, okay, this isn't it, but how about we come at it this way? And I imagine there's a lot of writers who are like, no, this is the way it is. It's either this or nothing. <laughs> but for those who are open to it, I think yeah. that's an amazing way of coming at it. And I think that's why I can never be officially an editor or an agent I'm much more writing instructor because I will come into somebody's work like a bulldozer and 
delete everything and be like, this is the way it should be done. Uh-huh. Because as a writing instructor, I want to give them very practical examples. But that's not great for an agent or an editor to, in, you know, force their, their sort of voice or their way of doing things on, on other writers. All right. So Jenny, can we ask you to read your query letter for us? Absolutely. So this says, Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and the voices of diverse authors on the podcast. What a gift. Cece, based on your interest in power imbalances and family dysfunction, I present my suspense dual POV novel, The Weight of Ambition, complete at 83,000 words. The family issues and bites of jealousy will appeal to readers of Apples Never Fall by Leanne Moriarty, while the mental discordance will thrill readers of Sally Hempworth's The Mother-in-Law. When Tabitha's mother died, her faith died with her. While dad mourned from the cab of his long-haul tractor trailer, Tabitha learned the security of success and the fickleness of family. Almost 30 years later, Tabitha Danforth can hustle. She balances a powerful career on Wall Street and a charming life with her husband in coastal Maine. When her CEO dangles the chief investment officer title, She'll have to deliver a new acquisition or find herself out of a job. Melody, a suburban housewife, sits alone. Parental controls keep her from the news and social media. Her husband says it's for her own good. What he doesn't know is that she's already discovered who's to blame for their shattered existence. Her college roommate, Tabitha, and the Wall Street firm she works for. When Tabitha's mother-in-law has what looks like a stroke, Melody is the only one not surprised. Agreeing to help, Melody slides back into her old friend's life, the one she had envisioned many years ago as her own. Meanwhile, prodded by her late father's ambitious dreams, Tabitha is running out of time to close a high-stakes deal with cunning players. Will having it all ultimately cost Tabitha more than she can sacrifice? With heart, suspense, and complex characters, the weight of ambition explores the grit and determination necessary to climb the precarious yet alluring Wall Street ladder. I am a 20 plus year career woman in high finance in pursuit of story. I host the popular interview style podcast, We Talk Careers, for a global audience focused on the sacrifice and passion required of modern women. This manuscript is a current 2023 ACFW Genesis semifinalist and a 2022 crown finalist. I've attached the first five pages. I would love the opportunity to discuss representation. Much appreciation, Christine Delano. Wonderful, Jenny. Thank you. Okay, so what is your take on this query letter? So I think that there is a lot working within this query letter. I really like the comps, Apples Never Fall and Sally Hempworth. I think both of those are obviously authors whose books really sell. And it really gives me a sense of where she sees this in the marketplace. It's upmarket fiction and, you know, and it has some suspense elements. So I think that's really appealing. And I also think it's really interesting that she hosts this podcast because I think that, again, like helps us build a story. So when her book is published, you know, her publicist will be able to use that to get her more media because they'll say, ah, you know, this is this is a topic that interests her a lot. The things that we expect of career women and how, you know, how precarious that situation is. And I think, you know, having a history in finance is very interesting to me as well, because I think, you know, finance is is a difficult space to be a woman in. And it, you know, I am very curious as a reader what it sort of 
you know, what are the sacrifices you have to make to fit into that world? So all of that I think is very lovely and very well done. There are some things that I would change. One of them is, you know, she's talking about Tabitha's mother dying and she says that her faith died with her and her dad, you know, mourned from the cab of his long haul tractor trailer. So dad doesn't come into this story at all. But because he's so front and center in that query letter, I keep reading, like expecting dad to come back in some sense. And this reference to her faith dying with her, I think is, again, just something that's that doesn't feel like it's followed up with. So I don't, it's so vague that I don't know what it means. And because I don't want know what it means, I sort of like gloss over it as a reader. And so I think if she would like to talk about those things more specifically so that we can build that connection to the reader, great. But otherwise, she probably doesn't need them, frankly. Another thing I'm really interested in is Tabitha's age range. So we know that this happened almost 30 years later after her mother dies. Does that mean she's 31? Does that mean she's 61? Right. So that I think is important for the reader just to be able to situate what sort of questions are important in Tabitha's life that she's trying to answer. Right. Is she looking to try to, you know, have this one last big hurrah, you know, to build her career at the top of the ladder? Or is she, you know, thinking about having kids and wants to know like what, you know, what she has to accomplish in order to sort of earn those kids, which is, you know, how I think a lot of people in finance can really feel. So I want more from her so I understand what's at stake for her, what motivates her, and sort of what obstacles are standing in her way. And the same thing I feel in terms of Melody. We know that Melody has this shattered existence and she blames Tabitha, but we don't really know what, what is shattered about her. Everything is just really vague at this point. Is, it, is she really anxious? Did she have, you know, some, some other, like, because of the first pages, I can say maybe she had some fertility problems, right? So things that would give us an indication of whether or not the things that she's struggling with are similar to the things that Tabitha is struggling with so that we understand their dynamic a little bit better. So anytime you're dealing with a dual POV novel, you have to have the people sort of talk to each other, even if they're not actually talking to each other. So we know whether, you know, Melody's problems are being echoed in Tabitha's problems or whether they're being like complimented. And so we need, I think, more along those lines. And one of the things that I think is really important to talk about too is, you know, Tabitha, there's this line, will having it all ultimately cost Tabitha more than she could sacrifice? But because we don't understand enough about what Tabitha is going through, I don't know what having it all means to Tabitha. The only thing I know about her is that she wants to be powerful in her job and she wants to get the chief investment officer title. But that's not that's not having it all. That's just having one thing, right? That's just having this, this great career. And so I get the impression that more is happening here that needs to be revealed in this letter so that I can, you know, I can pick up this copy, which, you know, which a publicist or whoever would, or an editor would mimic for your jacket copy, right? If I'm a reader in a bookstore, I pick this up and I think, oh, that's me. Or, oh, that's something I'm dealing with. I want to read this. But right now, I don't think we have enough to really like hold on to it. 
Yeah, you know, for our listeners, I've said before, writing a query letter is tough. We don't want to give too much away, but always err on the side of specificity rather than being too vague. You know, Carly and Cece have said they'll get a query letter and they'll ask for full pages and then they'll only read the full pages like three months later. So they've already forgotten maybe something you revealed in the query letter. So so rather be more specific than vague. Okay, so Jenny, what was in those opening pages for our listeners? So it begins with a prologue, which where we don't know who who is in the prologue. We don't know if it's Melody or if it's Tabitha, which at first I think took me a little aback. And then I thought, oh, this could be really interesting. And I, I ended up really liking it. And in the opening prologue, Someone is stealing a baby from a hospital, which already just gives this very strong sense of tension. She has this basket. She's putting somebody's baby. I I think it's somebody else's. I don't think it's hers. It's actually a little unclear, and I think the, the author could be more clear. She's putting a baby into a basket and walking away with it. And that, I think, is great because it creates this strong sense of like, oh my God, these questions, right? These seeds of curiosity you keep talking about with good reason, right? Like, whose baby is this? Where is she going? Why is she stealing a baby? All of these big questions. And then, you know, me wanting to know, obviously, from the query, you think that it's Melody who's living this shattered existence. But then I think, wow, wouldn't it be so interesting if that was Tabitha, the, you know, the person who wants this big finance title to like be stealing this baby because it's so unexpected. So she's, you know, she's leaving with the baby. She thinks she's going to get caught. She takes the baby away and then the book opens. So already we have this, this strong sense of, oh my gosh, what's happening here? And then you cut to Tabitha with chapter one. And Tabitha is about to give a keynote speech she's really excited about. She thinks it's going to be really big for her career. Um, the guy introducing her calls her a bond market bimbo in his speech. <laughs> oh. Yeah. And she has to go on stage anyway. So she goes on stage. She gives this, you know, amazing keynote speech about finance stuff. She comes off stage and people are trying to get her to work for her. She's getting all these business cards. It went really well. The bimbo guy is nowhere to be found. And she's thinking about her mother-in-law's 60th birthday. So that sort of gives us a sense of how old around she must be. And, you know, she has this great line that she has to bring something and it must be homemade, not too simple, but also not too fancy. Mainers are suspicious at even a whiff of pretension. So she's getting like some of that fun nuance. And her car is ready and she leaves. So I think these pages could have a lot going for them. I think the prologue is really strong. I think chapter one could be improved a little bit. You know, when she's giving this speech, we the reader doesn't necessarily have a good sense of, again, like the biggest things I talk about these all the time. What does she want? What is she afraid of losing? And what are the obstacles getting in her way? We don't really know what, so that's another way of saying, you know, what's at stake? What's her motivation? And what are the, what are the things keeping her from getting what she wants? And I think that's really important because, you know, she's about to give this speech but we don't necessarily know why it matters. Like, it feels like it's just about ego. Like, it's just like, oh, I want to look good. When I, I feel like that's really surface level. And I think that there's got to be something deeper that the, the author can really dig into. What does this mean to her? Why is this speech out of every speech she's ever given? Why is this one the significant one? And then they have this guy, you know, introducing her and call her a bond market bimbo, you know, 
if that happened to me, I would be mortified. I would, you know, be second guessing everything. I would be thinking, oh my God, these people are going to, you know, I'm going to go on this stage. They're going to laugh at me. But the response here in the text is, who was introducing me? My mind blank. Why couldn't I remember who it was? And so she's thinking, she's trying to figure out who the guy is. And so it's not about, you know, why he's hurting her chances at getting what she wants. She's more like, who is that? Who is that guy who did that? And I think that's a missed opportunity because the author could really take that moment to dig deep into what she's afraid of, what motivates her, all of those things. So that we understand that, that it's about her and that it's not about him. So we get a lot of things like that, that I think too are probably very real to working in finance and that I appreciate because it shows you what sort of person can get past those elements to kind of do what needs being done. And then, you know, we get to this place later in the text where, you know, she's just, she's just like winding down. She gave a great speech, but like, we don't get the sense that like anything has happened. She just gave a speech and she's done and she's, her car comes and she's leaving. But again, like, I don't understand the weight of this scene for her. But once I understand that, then maybe we could, you know, maybe we can work with this a little more. And it makes me curious to know whether this is the right part of the book that she should be starting at, or if there's a bigger moment that can sort of be the catalyst for something. Because right now I'm just not getting that like energy, that like catalyst energy. Right. Yeah. For our listeners, that inciting incident is so incredibly important. Remember, you need to answer the why now, why today question. Why is this person's narrative starting at this particular moment and not a week before or a week later? And this is something that I see the most in terms of my manuscript evaluations. And as a creative writing instructor is we have too much of a there I was minding my own business start as opposed to giving the character something that they desperately want, that they're obsessed about, that we can tie stakes to, et cetera, et cetera. Like, for example, in Jenny's book, The Hunter, you heard me read the beginning earlier. And for her, for Lee, right at the beginning, it's this obsession over why she did what she did when the fallout was so catastrophic. So straight out, we have something that she's preoccupied with and we get on board with that immediately, even though we don't know the answers, just like she doesn't know the answers. So always try and give your character something they desperately want, that there's high stakes tied to, and that we as the reader understand straight out the gate, because then when obstacles stop being thrown at them, we're cheering for them and we're wanting them to overcome those obstacles. Jenny, this interview has gone on longer than most of ours because it's been such a delight chatting with you. Thank you so, so much for for joining us. For our listeners, get The Hunter. Honestly, it's a masterclass in curiosity seeds, in description, in characterization. And Jenny, can you just tell us a little bit about your next book, especially since it's my understanding it's a sequel. Is that right? That's right. It's a sequel. So I can't say too much about it because it has to go through all of those, you know, the things, but it continues the story of Lee and her husband and sort of asks what is next for them and what happens once they get over, I think possibly like this first hurdle in the relationship. Have they, have they sort of recovered or is there more for them to uncover about each other? Amazing. And for our listeners who are working on books that have sequels, potentially a series, just in terms of behind the scenes, did you pitch this to the publisher upfront as a series? 
or was it a one book deal and they were like we'll see how the first book does and then we'll buy the sequel how does that work for our listeners? yeah it was a one book deal that I had never thought would be a series I would get really frustrated when I would read books that felt like they ended on a cliffhanger so I didn't want that I was like if you're paying $30 for something like you get a complete book like that's the deal you know, but afterwards, you know, we talked about it and that's what they wanted and that's what I wanted to write. And so here we are with, you know, a series wild. <laughs> it's so amazing when you create this character who's so vivid, who's so real. And as writers, we get used to like spending all this time with them, investing so much in them, getting to know them so well. And then at the end being like, okay, so goodbye. It's teary. It's a teary goodbye, but you're like, i got to move on. And so it's always amazing when you don't have to move on and when you get to spend more time with them. I feel very lucky. All righty. So that's the end of today's episode. Thank you again, Jenny. And for everybody else, we will catch you again on next week's episode of The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.